Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Hey, Climavores listeners, we hope you had a happy and safe Thanksgiving. And if you went with a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, we hope you enjoyed one of your most climate-friendly holiday meals of the year. Today, instead of our usual back and forth, we're bringing you last week's Climavores live conversation with Dr. Marion Nessel. She's a nutrition and food studies professor at NYU and author of Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Tamar calls Marion the premier nutrition scientist of the Western world, but I just go with the nutrition goddess. And it's only a little bit of an exaggeration. In our conversation, we dug deep into why we believe what we do about food and nutrition and where eating for the planet is and isn't the same as eating for your health. Plus, we answered some burning audience questions on climate and nutrition during the Q&A session at the end. So I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores Live. Marion, I don't know how long we've known each other. The first time I called you up to to ask you questions about nutrition was probably some 20-odd years ago. And since then, of course, I see that you are probably the most quoted, the most cited. So I think your title should be Premier Nutrition Scientist of the Western World. Well, I thought I thought we agreed we were going to call her the nutrition goddess. I thought it was good heavens. <laughs> okay, so these are the things we fight about backstage here at Climavores. But well, I'm glad to be here. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and, and like one of the the most interesting parts of your book was when you talk about. Uh, coming to the field of nutrition from molecular biology and getting interested in it in like 1975. And this realization that in the nutrition studies that came before, there wasn't a whole lot of rigor going on. And, and you know, it was funny because I, I come to, to it with, you know, some background in nutrition, but Mike picked up on exactly the same thing. Right, it was incredible. You were just like assigned to teach some class when you had never done nutrition before, and you started looking up these studies that were supposedly authoritative. And it's like, oh, well, don't eat fats because we did a study on six in- inmates at a mental institution, or you know. Can I tell you what my favorite one was? Yes. Yeah, I mean, my absolute favorite was, you know, and I tell this story because it was the first day I was preparing for this class. And I go to the library and I'm, I'm, the first thing I find out is that there are no nutrition books that agree on what's required in the human diet. Um, the lists were different for, for different reasons and for reasonable reasons. And I went to the library to look at the original studies, and I picked up this study done on vitamin C deficiency in a penitentiary in, I think, Kansas. Um, And during the, they put the prisoners on, um, and there weren't very many of them. I think there were nine in that study. Uh, They put them on a a vitamin C deficient diet. And during the study, two of the prisoners escaped. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is not a well-controlled clinical trial. Does that make the N7 or 9? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought, really? Um, So, and I just thought, oh, this is really 
fun because it was difficult teaching molecular biology to undergraduates, but I thought teaching nutrition would be so much fun because they could read the original studies and critique them. And we could teach critical thinking in biology right in the first class, and they could do it, and they could do it. Well, Tamar and I both had the reaction when we read these stories, really, about, because you got a very late start in this in this field, but it was almost like, I mean, obviously, you had the fresh eyes, and you saw that the emperor had no clothes. It was almost like the field got a late start. Um, you kind of picked up this, uh, you know, this entire area and realized that that we knew almost nothing about nutrition. No, I think I think that's not fair. <laughs> that's really not fair. Mike exaggerates sometimes. In in defense of in defense of nutrition science, it's very hard to do. It's really difficult. First of all, you can't do studies on prisoners anymore, um, which is un- unless un- unless they're voluntary. So that you know, the most what I think is the most important nutrition study done in decades was done in a metabolic ward, which is essentially a prison um, for, but for a very limited time, and people volunteer to do these studies and are paid for them. Um, so that changes the you know the dynamic a little bit, but it's very difficult to do when people eat such complicated diets. And so the most intellectually challenging question in nutrition is what do people eat? You know, or what do people eat? You you can't you, you, because diets are so complicated, <clears throat> and the the variation in one person from day to day is greater than the variation from one person to another. So that makes it really really hard. But I mean, there are things. You know, the, the I started my work in nutrition at the end of the vitamin era. Um, and, you know, the scientists had demonstrated there were factors in food that were essential for human nutrition. And by the time I started, they knew what they all were pretty much. There have been some changes since then, but they're very small. Um, so that was, you know, that, that was a kind of science that you could do and control. Yeah, deficiency diseases, you can study those. What's much, much harder is the switch to chronic diseases, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity. Those kinds of things are much, much more difficult to study, and nobody's really figured out. There are lots of critiques, but nobody's really figured out how to do it better. And I don't, and I don't think, and I think nutrition scientists are trying to do the best job they can. Oh, so I was just going to say, without without point, I don't want to point fingers at uh, at the at the at the scientists. We can sort of agree that this is really hard to tease out. But for people who are newer to nutrition, like I am, um, let's just sort of stipulate that you know. It's very difficult, and back 50 years ago, they were, they were trying their hardest, but they didn't know very much except maybe about what nutrients we needed. Um, 50 years later, can you give us a, like a, maybe a baseline of what do we know about what we should eat? That we didn't know when you started in 1975. The world is divided into lumpers and splitters. <laughs> I turn out to be a lumper. So I look at the, I tend to look at things in the sort of the big picture and I don't care about the details. I think dietary advice is so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And really once you define what a food is, 
he's really got it. Um, I, I mean, I oh, how I wish I could write like that. The, um, you know, once you define that a food is something that is not what we're now calling ultra-processed, which is a relatively new concept that I think is a huge advance in nutrition, um, we know what a healthy diet is. And, you know, we can argue about the details. We can argue about whether more fat or more carbohydrate is better or worse. But basically, if you're eating a variety of real foods that aren't highly processed and you're eating your veggies, you're doing okay. Relax. Enjoy your dinner. I am like you, a lumper. I, like you, think that Michael Pollan's advice was the best seven-word food advice that, that, that you could give. But I think that the debates and the arguments and let's let's face it the brawls about nutrition that are panning out in now in social media but before that in magazines and all kinds of media is uh, is splitters and i love this distinction between lumpers and splitters because almost all of the debate is dominated by splitters and so we have this advice, and when people talk about how you know nutrition advice keeps changing and it's impossible to follow, eggs are good, eggs are bad, saturated fat is good, saturated fat is bad, and that advice, those things have changed. So can we hold nutrition science accountable for some of that stuff, for a little too much splitting that has left people hopelessly confused and with the idea that splitting is the right thing to do when you're thinking about what to eat? Right. And, you know, I, th I wish everybody was a lumper because they could relax and enjoy what they're eating a lot more and not worry about it so much. But if you look at what's going on in the, um, in the nutrition literature, it's just filled with splitting. That's what scientists do. They split. Um, and, you know, I have a particular thing about industry-funded research. It's my it's my well it's my obsession i'll admit to it it's my obsession and every time i mean i can look at the title of a study and figure out who paid for it you know i mean when you get to that point there's something wrong with that there's something wrong when the um uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics owns stock in nestle and pepsico uh, you know this is not a very good way of doing science. And I don't know whether it's because nutrition science got stuck. I mean, w where the field is moving now is into precision nutrition, which are, I mean, nothing could get splittier than this. This is, um, you know, this is nutrition advice to individuals and forget public health advice. Okay, so if we can't even define a diet for humans in general, how can we do it for individuals? Well, we do, or you can do it for individuals. You can they would argue that you can't do it. I mean, I think eat food, not too much, mostly plants, takes care of everybody. So maybe you can, again, for the for the layman, um, you've, you've talked about how industry is sort of skewing the recommendations and skewing people's perceptions about what they should be eating. Um, can you talk a little bit about what are some of the specific misperceptions people have, um, and particularly the ones that you think, uh, you know, these sort of bad studies or industry Funded studies are responsible for. What do what do people think they know that are that is wrong? Well, they think that one food makes a really big difference, or that one nutrient makes a really big difference when it can't. 
in in a diet. I mean, you know, I I love fruits and vegetables. I want people eating more fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, and so forth. I just wish they would stop funding studies to demonstrate that blueberries are better than strawberries or better than raspberries or better than peaches. Um, and every single one of them has funded studies to show that they've got more of one kind of antioxidant than another. What you're supposed to do is eat a variety of them. Um, and the only reason for doing these things is for marketing purposes. The real problem that we have in our food system is we've got too much food available. Okay, let me ask you one question about what you just said, because when I talk to people, nutrition scientists, um, specifically, usually nutritional epidemiologists, not people doing so much controlled trials, but sometimes them too, because we see controlled trials on blueberries and almonds and all, and all those mm-hmm. other things. Yeah, and they're very well they're very well executed. And when I push back on these, one of the things one of, that I hear a lot is that if we didn't do those studies, all of these scientists would basically be unfundable There's because there's no public money for nutrition. And, and, you know, that's a very inside baseball or inside nutrition science answer. But have we created a monster of all these nutrition scientists and the only thing to do is these industry funding studies? Uh, I think not. I mean, Kevin Hall isn't funded by industry. You know, I, I mean, and I, I'm going to get into big trouble on this one, but, you know, I think good science gets funded. You know, and... You know, I, I mean, if you're doing a study that's really important, you're going to get funding for it. Uh, but to demonstrate that blueberries are better than raspberries or strawberries or, you know, any other kind of berry or um, to, I mean, or the fights over fat and carbohydrate, I, I mean, that that kind of thing, the, uh, really... Well, let me let me ask let me let me take a step back then because again, <laughs> somebody who's who's let and I'm a lumper too. Um, but so my lump looking at this is whether it's because of bad science or because maybe people just aren't reading the science or people getting the wrong idea about the science. Um, if the right answer is Michael Pollan's seven words, that's not what Americans are eating. Right, they're not eating mostly plants. They're not eating mostly food. They are definitely not eating not too much. Right. Um, so, so what's going wrong? My point about there's four thousand calories available per capita in the food supply. Um, that's twice as much as what the country needs on average, um, because that four thousand calories applies to men, women, athletes, couch potatoes, and little tiny babies. It's everybody. So that's twice the amount of food available in the food supply than the population needs. What that does is set up a food supply that is enormously competitive. And if you're a food company trying to sell your product in the middle of that, you've got a big, tough job to do. And the other thing that I say over and over and over again is that food companies are not social service agencies and they're not public health agencies. They're businesses with stockholders who have have as their number one priority profits. 
immediate higher returns on investment reported to Wall Street every 90 days. That's the system that they're in. So it's not that food industry executives are sitting around a table saying, how are we going to make Americans fat? How are we going to shove those Twinkies into you? They're going to talk about how to shove those Twinkies into you because they don't make any money if you're not buying those Twinkies. So the entire system is set up to get people to eat more food, not less. Because because eat food, not too much, mostly plants, is terrible for business. It's just terrible. The problem as you see it, and you you and I have talked about this before, and I see it the same way, the problem isn't a knowing problem because we know what constitutes a reasonable diet. Um, The problem is a doing problem. And we have all of these researchers, all who, both working on individual products and working on diets, who are still working on the knowing problem rather than what I think is the harder problem, which is the doing problem. How can scientists or nutrition science help people navigate this food environment where there's twice as many calories as they should be eating available. And it's in their face. It's designed to be overeaten. It's cheap. It's convenient. How can It's irresistible. Right, exactly. It's designed to be irresistible. (laughs) It's designed to be overeaten for all the reasons you just said. And how how can science, how can these nutrition scientists, if we put them all out of, out of work by taking away their industry funding, <laughs> can they work on this other problem, the, the doing problem, the execution of what we already know a healthful diet is? Well, that requires behavioral science, and that's not what they're trained for. So what do we do with them? I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a problem in society. And what... You know, and, you know, if you care about nutrition and you care about the nutrition profession, you want them all doing something about what to me is the most important public health nutrition problem in the United States today, which is that 74% of American adults are overweight or obese and therefore at higher risk of all of these diseases. And we don't have a health care system in this country. So somebody's got to pay for that. Or not. Since you mentioned that 74% number, um, uh, there is, of course, there is a, a segment of, I, I would say the nutrition community, certainly the fat acceptance community, that pushes back against the riskiness of being overweight or obese. Can you comment on that, please? Sure. I mean, I don't think there's any question that it increases risk. The argument is at what level? You know, at what level? And that's a legitimate argument um, that, uh, you know, that really requires um, an enormous amount of investigation. There are real debates about it. Different studies find different things. But there's no question that at the higher levels, particularly, the risk is greatly increased. Um, and you don't want that increased risk because we don't have a healthcare system that'll take care of it. We just don't. And the and and therefore you know and now we have COVID nineteen and uh, it's higher risk for COVID nineteen as well, and all of the inequalities in society play out in in this in this arena as well, and you know if seventy four percent of American adults are overweight, overweight is normal now. I look at pictures of when of my kids' classes, you know my kids are 
I'm old. My kids are old. I look at pictures of their classes, and there were no overweight kids in their classes. They were all skinny. By by, they look underfed by today's standards. You look at uh, pictures of classes now, and the kids are much heavier. Is this good, bad, or indifferent? I think it's a problem for society, and one that arguing that being overweight is stigmatized, you know, is stigmatized, which is absolutely true, um, isn't going to solve. And so there, there's, uh, the stigma issue is a really important one, and I'm all for non-stigmatizing. On the other hand, I'm also for trying to do something to help prevent um, what is a, a really serious public health problem um, that people can't do on their own. You can't fight a whole food system on your own. You can't do it. Uh, it's just not possible to do that. If you've got delicious, irresistible food in front of you, you're going to be eating it. I'm going to be eating it. Everybody else is going to be eating it too. Marion, let me ask you, and and this is at the risk of getting maybe slightly splitty, but perhaps in the in the lumpiest way possible. And as uh, and as and as climavores, it's going to be pretty obvious why why we're uh, you know why we're getting into this. Um, but uh, but one, I guess you could eat their whole foods, right? But uh, Americans in particular, but the world in general, eats an awful lot of animal products. Um, and I guess they count as food, not as mostly plants, um, but, uh, but we eat an awful lot of them. Um, and there are a lot of questions about basically, do we eat too much? And Tamar and I have said, like, way too much for the planet. But how about for our health? And, uh, and do, do we eat? too much meat and dairy. Yeah, I mean, there's one good lumping thing in this, and that is that the diet is that's believed to be, you know, pretty much consensus believed to be best for health is also the diet that's best for the planet, and that's eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So we're back to that again. And the mostly plants means for Americans, because we eat so much meat, eating less meat because of the effect of beef consumption in particular on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I think that the documentation of that is really pretty impressive and consistent, and, but it makes it easy because if you're going to do dietary advice, you advise people to eat unprocessed foods as much as possible or minimally processed foods, um, make sure they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. The eat less meat is implied in that, and not too many calories. Um, and then we go back to uh, why can't people eat that way? Well, first of all, people love processed foods and they love meat. And meat has become an American icon. You know, if you advise eating less meat, that's un-American. And, the, and you'll hear from the beef industry about it. Well, when we did our episode about meat, we had a, a clip of John Wayne with his cattle. And, and it was from Red River, I think, where he's like feeding Americans beef. And that's sort of deeply ingrained in our American identity. Fourth of July. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, but there is, as you know, a segment of the nutrition world that pushes back pretty hard on this idea of mostly plants. And they're, they're committed to the idea that meat is actually healthful, that saturated fat is not bad, and that one of the reasons this mostly plants um, 
advice has gotten traction, not just from Michael Pollan, but that's basically what the recent Eat Lancet report, which was supposed to, this big report that was supposed to define what a diet optimal for, for humans and, and planet is. And then, you know, there are accusations of, you know, big vegan funding because it was, it was <laughs> right. And that, you know, especially the ties, the, because a lot of this advice is coming out of the Harvard School of, of Public Health and there are ties between it and some, you know, vegan oriented or plant forward organizations. And so their charges, and it's it's almost like, you know, they're trying to hoist people on their own petard because, of course, we've talked about industry funding and how that can bias things. And so their accusations of, you know, tainting in the other direction, too, do you give them any credence? Well, I, I, mostly plants doesn't mean exclusively plants. Right. Well, the E. Lancet report wasn't exclusively plants. It was mostly plants. At least not to me. It, it's not. Um, and, you know, again, this is a lumping way of looking at it. Um, you get to eat meat, and even the Eat Lancet report had in a box that it was really important for people in developing countries who were on very, very low-calorie diets to have some animal products in their diet because they would, they would be much better nutritionally. But I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most Americans are not nutritionally deprived. Um, you know, if, if it's, you know, it's uh, so vitamin and mineral deficiencies. I mean, there's a lot of talk about on the edges that, you know, that there's suboptimal intake of some vitamins and minerals, but you don't see, you don't see evidence of nutrient deficiencies in people walking around on the street unless they're, uh, you know, they're taking a lot of alcohol or um, uh, drugs or have other really serious health problems. You just don't see it. So the, uh, it's not, um, you know, we don't need meat for the nutrients, but a little meat goes a long way. Well, well, Marion, let me uh, let me pick a fight since uh, since we've been just getting along too well. <laughs> Enough of this warm bath of consensus, right? Um, because because uh, it's true, right? Like mostly plants means uh, means some meat, and uh, and real food means uh, means not processed food. You've been very tough on on plant based meat. You know the meat substitutes, the fake the fake meat, which I think we'll all agree is processed. But for those of us who the, the, for those of us who think about climate all day long um, and know that we do eat the equivalent of three burgers a week here in the, <laughs> per capita in the United States, um, it's desperately important that we uh, that we reduce reduce meat consumption, the actual animal meat consumption. And it would be awesome if everybody suddenly started just eating lots of kale and lentils. Lentils, lentils. <laughs> lentils, you know, we all love lentils. Um, but it, so far it ain't happening. And, you know, if, if they can come up with the, the fake meat that tastes and feels and sears like the original, that certainly would be an awesome climate win. Maybe uh, we've we've discussed this. Seems like kind of a compared to normal burgers, sort of so-so, kind of give or take a wash on health. Um, and yet you've been really tough on it. So uh, can you sort of like explain why? Well, I have my prejudices, and this is one of them. <laughs> I love that you just put it out there like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to accuse me of it? It's, I mean, it's, there, it's clearly there, and one. 
<laughs> and and one of them is I don't eat anything artificial if I can avoid it. Um, I think we, you know, you look at the ingredient list of the plant-based meats and their concoctions of ingredients. That's very unattractive to me. I have choices. I have enough money to make choices. I would rather eat meat than, um, than eat those things. I don't understand them because if you don't want to eat meat, you don't have to eat meat. It's not essential to the diet. And I just don't understand why anybody would want an artificial substitute. I never liked those artificial fish things either. The, uh, the surimi stuff. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't eat foods with artificial sweeteners. It's just um, something that I think I, I want to know how to metabolize. I want to know that we evolved to metabolize the food that we're eating. Um, and so when I look at these things, I think, well, this isn't very attractive to me, and I don't really understand them, although I do understand um, the goal of trying to reduce meat consumption and many of the people who are involved in the plant-based um, meat movement are people who care a lot about animal welfare and animal rights. Um, but it was explained to me by uh, one person who really likes the artificial meat saying that she's just so happy that they exist and McDonald's is serving them because she can now take her child to McDonald's. And that's the downside. And and I I have a foot in your camp, and I I've I've fessed up to this on on climavores before, and Mike knows this about me that that although I am in favor of plant based meats as a as as a product as a policy, I don't want to cook with them in my house because it just doesn't seem like it it like but it I totally admit that this is absolutely visceral and it is not intellectual prejudice a, a totally <laughs> prejudice you and me will have dinner together we'll talk about it and the question is okay step back from not wanting to eat it yourself and ask yourself if this could displace beef um, and that's a big if, and it hasn't yet. If it could displace beef, is that a good thing? I never advise anybody to eat in a way that I don't eat. I follow my own dietary principles. I eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, that's that's how I eat normally. I like eating that way. Tell me again what you think the good diet <laughs> advice is. Right. I mean, that's how I eat. Um, you know, and I would never ask anybody else to eat in a way that I don't, and I don't eat that stuff. So it doesn't interest me. I think it's fascinating from a political standpoint. I follow the stock market on it just like everybody else does, and um, I think it's really interesting that um, you know people are doing these things. They're you know they're they're fungus based ones and mushroom-based ones, mycelium-based ones. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens to all of them. I'm not very interested in them. You guys are admitting that this is sort of, you know, kind of a knee-jerk, visceral reaction. Oh, I'm a, I'm 100% in favor of them. I want to be clear about that. But again, there are like there are like millions of people living in the floodplain in Bangladesh who care a lot about, you know, our our diets. And, you know, you don't want to be too preachy about the, about any of this stuff, but but also there's this notion like, uh, kind of eat what you want. Um, our diets do have a real big impact not only on ourselves, but 
on the world. And there is the sense that like, there's something kind of icky. I mean, I think kind of what goes on inside a cow is, is kind of icky too. Again, it's, it's, it's all, it's all a matter of taste, but we don't know anything bad about a uh, cultured meat. Um, this idea of growing meat out of cells, this, I, I, you know, the idea of like, as you mentioned, fermentation, um, all kinds of different ways of creating meat without animals. When it, like there's there's no no evidence that it's going to be terrible for us no evidence that it's going to be great for us we sort of don't know but we really do know what it's preventing and that's like this kind of unsustainable situation with essentially ruminants mostly beef uh in the world that presumably at some level has to change well i think there are other ways of um getting at reduced beef consumption. You could stop subsidizing their feed, for one thing, um, and raise the prices. Um, and, but that, of course, requires changing our agricultural system to one that promotes food for people rather than feed for animals and fuel for automobiles. I mean, we have a system in which the healthiest foods are perceived as the most expensive and, in fact, are the most expensive. And unless we do something about that, um, we can't have a, you know, we're not going to have a, a, a diet that's healthier for people in the planet. So, I mean, there are lots of political issues involved in this that are very complicated and very difficult to deal with, and it's hard to know how they're all going to play out. What, what the subsidies do is to cause overproduction. The subsidies encourage farmers, to, because the subsidies go to corn, soybeans, um, sugar beets, those kinds of things. It encourages farmers to grow more of them and often to grow them in places that are climate inappropriate. They shouldn't be growing those things where they're growing them, but they get more subsidies if they do. Um, and so it's a, it's kind of an indirect way of of doing that. If you look at if you look at the um, at what's happened to prices. Um, since since 1980, when all of these problems started, the price of fruits and vegetables has gone up much, much higher than the price of ultra-processed foods or the price of sodas or the price of foods in general. So there's something about the way our food system works that makes the cost of the foods that you want people to be eating more of more expensive and the cost of the foods that you want them to be eating less of less expensive. That's That doesn't work. So, and I guess the, the way that I have thought about this and the way that I talk about it a lot is that, you know, when we think of what are healthy foods, automatically we turn to fruits and vegetables. But, you know, as I'm sure you know, you know, 1% of our 400 million crop acres grow vegetables. And in the meantime, the backbone of a diet that's healthy for people and planet is whole grains and legumes. And those are subsidized in exactly the same way that corn and soy are. And, well, but they're, they're subsidized in Title I commodities. They're subsidized less because they're grown less, absolutely. And in fact, by but we, we increase the price, right? You mentioned ethanol that we pour it into our, into our cars. That increases the price of, uh, of those grains, right? That doesn't make it cheaper. That's, uh, you know, that's creating art in, additional demand. And, you know, I think the point is well taken, um, but I think, I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. But are there other things that you think that the government can do that can shift people's diets? 
Oh, we could have an education campaign for one thing. Start with that. Do you think we should start in schools? Because I, I once was talking with uh, uh, Michael Jacobson, the the former head, I know you know him, of the Center for Science and the Public Interest. And I asked him about changing people's diets. And, and he said that it's possible, he thinks that education, but it has to start with kids. He said, we have to wait for, you know, adults to age out, meaning die. <laughs> <laughs> Do you oh. think adults are hopeless? Um, I don't know. I mean, no, of course not. The, um, but the, um, you know, I think this, what happens in schools is really important, and I, I'm greatly in favor of schools that have garden programs. They're amazing to watch. They're just absolutely amazing, and they totally change the kids' relationship with foods. So it's possible to do that, but that requires money, and it requires time, and it requires a commitment, and it requires, um, you know, whenever anybody says nutrition should be taught in schools, I want to know what they're teaching. Are they teaching lumping or splitting? Um, you know, if they're, te- if they're teaching about individual vitamins, I'm not interested. Uh, do we have questions coming in? Stephen, we're down to the last 15 minutes here. I want to know what other people want to pick fights with Marion about. We're having too much fun. It's, this just isn't working at all. Yeah, we do, we do have a, a bunch of questions here. So one question is about a very popular subject, which is intermittent fasting. So <laughs> let's talk about not eating food. Uh, do we think that, what do you think about intermittent fasting? And does anyone have a take on whether, you know, reducing that calorie consumption is, is a good thing for the planet and for us? Well, I turn out to be a natural intermittent faster. I had no idea. You were um, on the vanguard. Yeah, I mean, really, I had no idea. I don't get hungry in the morning until about 11. Um, And so I'm not eating between dinner, which is getting earlier and earlier these days, and 11 in the morning. That's intermittent fasting. I don't think five. To me, it seems completely normal. Um, The You know, I think you should eat when you're hungry. I remember talking to you about low-carb diets, and the thing that you said was that if it restricts a whole category of food that tempts you and you tend to overeat, eliminating it altogether might be incredibly helpful. And it strikes me that any diet, whether it's when to eat or what to eat, if it helps people be more moderate, if it helps people eat less and be the weight they want to be, unless it's actively harmful, then that's a good thing. All diets work if they reduce calories. They all do. Um, you know, and people swear by their diets, that's fine. I don't I don't I don't judge what other people eat. Right, but it's all just, you know, like if you if the outflow is more than the inflow, you're gonna you're good. And if you know, if it's the reverse, you're not. I mean, I'm thinking I haven't stopped thinking about ice cream since you mentioned it five minutes ago. <laughs> Sorry. So, you know. Is is there any in the Sorry. house, Mike? I I'm at Mike's house. And so if he's got ice cream, we're going for it afterwards. I, I'm particularly fond of ginger. Anyway. Um that's my current favorite. Um but yeah, it's um, you know if you can't keep it in the house, then you shouldn't have it in the you know if if it's something that you're going to overeat that you have to figure out how to manage that. That's that's what I do. I have struggled with my weight my whole life, and I'm winning now. But I didn't always. And the thing that I do, you know, you open my pantry and you find like onions and 
there's a chicken in the refrigerator and there's some, you know, collard greens and frozen corn. And there's almost nothing you can just pick up and eat because if there's something you can pick up and eat, I'll pick it up and eat it. You'll pick it up and eat it. Right. We have a question in here about food price inflation. We previously did an episode on this, but I think it's worth revisiting. And I I think we want to be careful about how we talk about, um, you know, using a crisis to change people's behavior. And that was part of um, what we discussed in the episode. But there is a question about whether food price inflation, whether there is an opportunity to get people to adjust their diets and how you feel about that. So I would love to hear how you put that into context. I mean, here we're talking about people who don't have enough money to buy food. And, you know, I mean, that's the unfairness of the the unfairness of so much of society is that the burdens of whatever is happening fall heaviest on the people who can least, who have the least resources to manage it. Um, and this is another one of those just unbelievably unfair things that's happening. So I leave people alone at this point. Just get by. Do what you have to do to get by. And to and to bring it to the climate again, um, you know, while we've talked about particularly the Western diet, Americans eating too much, you know, that there's definitely not a scarcity problem here. Around the world, we've got a billion hungry people, and the answer for hunger, for and for climate as well is we're going to need a lot more food. Um, we need to make more of it without using more land. Just not here. We're going to have to redistribute food because we've got 2,000 calories a day in the United States that are not being used. Um, you know, and then we could talk about food waste, too. It's built into the system. We have another question in here about alternative proteins. Oh, so we can fight again. We got your... <laughs> we got your take on some of the uh, beef alternatives, but this question is specifically identifies bugs. I'm wondering <laughs> if you have any non-processed alternatives <laughs> that uh, that that you're interested in. Um, and then I'll, I'll throw in. Uh, I'd love to hear your perception on things like lab-grown meat and some of these cutting-edge food tech solutions. Uh, so we'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, the food tech solutions, um, I haven't tasted any of them. That's my first question always, is how does it taste? Um, so I'm withholding judgment on that. Um, I'm not convinced that they can... Uh, I'm concerned about several issues with the lab-grown stuff. Um, can they do it safely? Can they do it to scale? How does it taste? And what's it going to cost? Those the, those are my questions. And until those questions have answers, I think you have to withhold judgment on it. Um, but in theory, it's a great idea. I don't know. In theory. Um, what was the other one? Bugs. Um, oh, the bugs. <laughs> Everyone wants to know about the bugs. Well, I'm not a very adventurous eater, but I think they're fine. And there are lots of cultures that have eaten insects for a very, very long time and love them and, um, you know, find them tasty and crunchy and they're a source of protein and vitamins and minerals. I don't have any problem with it. They're food. 
Absolutely. But I, I will, there, here's a hill. Mike accuses me of having many hills I will die on, but here's one. <laughs> that Americans won't eat insects. And I think one of the best things about the plant-based meats is that it means we don't have to eat mealworms. Don't have to eat insects. <laughs> yeah, but right. we'll eat, but again, we'll eat animals that eat insects. And I think that's, uh, and you know, and then hopefully we can. Maybe you know, that's a way use, to upcycle the, the protein. stuff we're feeding to the animals to make those uh, those fake meats. As someone who grew up eating copious amounts of crickets and grasshoppers, I highly recommend ah, them. did you? Oh, yeah. How yeah, were they prepared? Uh, fr- fried up in butter. Right. Anything that's yeah. fried is good. Delicious. Yeah, <laughs> shoe leather, and I'm <laughs> in. Right. Okay, we have one final question about books that you recommend. But before we get into that question, I am just going to do you all a favor and talk about your books for a second so that people are aware because um I just want to mention we, we are we are talking to Marion because she has a new book out it's called Slow Cooked an Unexpected Life in Food Politics it's a so um when we it's a memoir yes um so if if you you know we're we're going to ask for book recommendations here from all of you but I just want to make sure that you're aware of her new book coming out and then Tamar's book um which is called To Boldly Grow also highly recommended. Um, I blurbed it. And then it. Mike has got a book. Marion blurbed it. <laughs> Marion's book tells you more about nutrition, but I'm going to say mine's funnier. And and then Mike has a column at Canary Media as well on, on food. So those are some resources you should check out. And now to transition to the question, if you had to recommend a few books on food and diet or just resources for the general reader who wants to be conscious of a healthy diet and its planetary impact, what would you recommend? Oh, oh, can I go first? Because I want to recommend Marion's book. Because it's been on my shelf. When did you write What to Eat, Marion? 2006. I'm working on a second edition, even as we speak. I have had that book on my shelf and gone back to it over and over. And I think it's aged pretty well. And it gives a, it's a thick book. It's like this thick. And it gives you a really good rundown of nutrition in in great Marion Lumper style. And if I can recommend another one of my books, <laughs> it's the cartoon book, because that is a quick and easy and I think very funny introduction to all of the same context, content. Um, and it's called Eat, Drink, Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. It has 200 cartoons in it. They're great. Oh gosh. Well, I'm I haven't read a lot of nutrition books. Um, but on uh climate stuff, the book I've been recommending lately is uh is The Wizard and the Prophet, um, by uh by Charles Mann, which is more gets more into some of these agricultural questions, but it really goes to the heart of a lot of what even what we've talked about today, this idea of uh kind of technology versus nature. Um all of these questions are uh, you know, at at the heart of it and basically at the heart of these questions about food and climate change. Well, thank you everyone for attending this live episode. Thanks, Mike and Tamar. Go check out Climavores anywhere you get your pods. You'll get tons and tons of episodes on everything from beef to soy to your Thanksgiving dinner and we're coming up we'll be covering regenerative agriculture thank you so much to Marion again you can check out her new book Slow Cooked An Unexpected Life in Food Politics and we're really grateful for your participation thanks a lot oh glad to be here this was fun thanks Marion and Mike I'll meet you in the kitchen (laughs) 